Dave Andrews is an activist and the author of several books, including Christy Anarchy, Discovering a Radical Spirituality of Compassion. This is Dave Andrews. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I'm here with Dave Andrews. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. It's good to be with you. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about a topic that I think is uh, a really fascinating one. Um, and it's about this idea, and there are many branches uh, to this topic that I'm sure we'll get into, but this idea that you've talked about of Christian anarchism. And I think that phrase, for people who have not heard it before, the way that Christianity has been talked about in the mainstream, uh, especially in America, is it's almost always um, framed, uh, especially on like the left as like an oppressive force or on the right as like this political force. And institutional Christianity uh, oftentimes acts in that way. Um, and when people hear this term, Christian anarchism, pe- people might be like, okay, like what are we even talking about here? What, what, what does that mean to you? Is that a term you really rely on, has deep meaning? Well, I think, first of all, I I acknowledge uh, that Christianity as a religion has um, co-opted the rhetoric of Jesus and used it as a means to oppress, uh, manipulate and exploit people. So uh, those uh, people that might be listening to this that uh, that kind of have an allergic reaction (laughs) uh, to... uh, Christianity as religion is something I understand, and uh, uh, I myself have a strong critique of the way Christianity has operated. Um, I mean, right now we're looking at uh, J6 in America. We're looking at the lead up to the uh, insurrection at uh, the Capitol, and there's a whole lot of research now that looks at uh, charismatic groups that have had their leaders um uh, announce that uh, Trump should be the president and um, who advocate in the name of Christian supremacy uh, that uh, Trump is a person that they could use to exercise what they call dominion or domination over the political uh, landscape in America. So um, I am totally opposed to that way of framing religion and the role of religion in politics. Um, So I am quite comfortable with the idea of what I actually refer to as Christy anarchy. Um, Now, for me, that is not a Christian ideology or an anarchist ideology or a Christian anarchist ideology. In fact, it's anti-ideology and it's um, uh, what I would call a Christ-like sensibility that uh, practices solidarity with the marginalized and disadvantaged and um, seeks to work uh, from the bottom up to empower people who are disempowered uh, by developing self-directed and other orientated uh, groups and organizations. So it's advocating a way of working out what I think was the spirituality, the radical spirituality of Jesus in a way that's antithetical to Christianity um, uh, as it's been constructed. Um, So 
yeah, I'm I'm nervous about advocating a Christian ideology or a uh, or an anarchist ideology, and I would really emphasise Christianity. Christianity is actually a sensibility, so it's about developing this kind of um, ethos uh, that actually uh, is subversive of the systems in which we find ourselves located. Um, yeah, and um, so that yeah, that's the kind of language that I could frame it in in a way that I'm more comfortable with but I don't know whether that is meaningful to you or not does that no, uh, I, I think it totally is um and yes that term Christianarchy Christianarchy uh that you've written about before and I'm when you mention in their dominion um in the case of Trump and having you know his supporters saying we want him to have dominion or do- domination yes. one thing that that flashed up in my mind and part of the reason why I don't think that in terms of like the social history of Christianity as a religion, I don't think that's like a huge aberration. If you look at the way that, I mean, I was raised Catholic. If you look at the way that the Catholic church operated for centuries, they were basically uh, like a force of empire where the popes were you know, heavily involved in politics, heavily involved in war and uh it seems like the, these popes were like little emperors. Um, did, like, how, how did how did that situation arise? And, and do you think that in some ways, maybe, um, I'm sure you don't believe this, but do you, do you ever grapple with the fact that maybe Christianity has been just like perverted beyond repair? Well, I, I often say Christianity is the Antichrist. <laughs> so, in other words, I believe that, that, that the way it's been constructed is now often exactly the opposite of, of what Jesus was on about. So not just a slight variation, but it's antithetical to that. So um, my understanding of the situation is um, that in those early few hundred years um, uh, of the movement uh, of uh, people who were trying to follow the ethos of Jesus, there was a, a, a real commitment to uh, non-dominance and non-violence. And in fact, I would say that their non-violence came out of their view of non-dominance. Um, you know, that uh, Jesus said clearly, you see the way the pagans operate, they dominate other people, but not so among you. And I really believe it's that um, call to uh, uh, not dominate others that then actually is a more fundamental call than even nonviolence because it's actually it's the means your way you dominate um uh, just because it's nonviolent rather than violent it still can be dominating and i think jesus radical call was to non-domination and to reframe hierarchies in terms of mutualities now i mean those poor struggling people as in those first few hundred years who critiqued uh the empire I found themselves persecuted brutally. And so when in, what, 313, they were offered a deal where they wouldn't be persecuted anymore um, uh, and uh, Christianity would become the um, religion of the empire, then that was a very attractive option for people. And as a, a coward myself, <laughs> the prospect of um, avoiding, uh, you know, uh, torture is a very attractive one. So I could, I am not in a position to criticise those people for um, for choosing to um, trade 
off their um, their spirituality for security. I, I understand that temptation. Right. The the consequence of which, though, was that from then on, um, uh, at the Edict of Milan, Christianity became imposed uh, as as the religion of the empire, and from that day till this. Uh, the church has sacralized the state and supported the state uh, as and and therefore has uh, has participated in the oppressions of people in the many empires that have uh, that have risen and fallen since. So and now and the struggle for somebody like me who sees myself as a follower of Jesus is that whole, approach to religion that sacralizes structures of oppression to me is totally contrary to the teachings of jesus who said you know you see the way they dominate but it shall not be so amongst you uh he forbade that modus operandi and at, i would ad actually advocate the uh, he encouraged a um, a um a spirituality of um uh, of self-managed and other-directed engagement with the world. When you say other-directed, what do you mean? Sorry, self-managed and other-directed. By that, I mean that, well, so let, let's say self-managed and other-orientated. So it's not just about me forming a group uh, for myself, um, but it's a group, be, me managing my affairs for myself, but with a concern of how I can be, uh, involved with the welfare of others. Um, mm. So that's what I mean by other directed or, or other orientated. Um, yeah. And when, when you said in there about how uh, the way that say like the, the church operates being antithetical uh, to the teachings of Christ, I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think you're absolutely right. And these, these original teachings are really beautiful and powerful. It seems though that like part of the reason that christianity spread so wild uh so widely it is partly because of that force of domination of like sending missionaries to you know indigenous communities and like converting them at the you know barrel of a gun or what have you um do you and when you you talk about a version of christianity that sticks to the original teachings of christ and is emphasizing, you know, sticking up for the marginalized, etc. Um, it almost feels like there's a tension here in terms of what makes Christianity a popular religion and what keeps Christianity like true to its roots. You know, like uh, some people might say, oh, man, like, you, you know, Christ, you should have seen him when he was playing basement shows and, you know bars in berlin or whatever now he's sold out it's gone mainstream man do, do you feel like like christianity would be as popular if this was how uh people approached it in in the terms you're talking about well um i love your analogy i think that's a great analogy um the issue of popularity is not so important to me but uh would it be um but there's no doubt uh, that empire uh, has used religion as a way of rationalizing its oppression of others. And, and religion has used empires to propagate its, uh, its religion. Um, so 
would it have been different otherwise? I don't know. But the reality is that uh, collaboration between uh, church and state has meant, meant that um, Christianity has become as widespread as the empires with which it collaborated. Um, now, if um, Christians had followed the teachings of Jesus and um, and refused to collaborate with that, uh, that may not have um, it may, may not have been uh, uh, so. Um, but I think uh, popularity is not the issue. Uh, I think uh, authenticity, uh, dignity, uh, honesty, integrity, um, empathy, solidarity, those kind of values are more important than popularity. And, um, and yeah, I, I think yep. it would have been much better if it had operated like that and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I mean, the, so do you, do you feel like when you say popularity is not an issue? I think that um, I, I hear where you're coming from. Uh, there are also other Christians out there, or pur purported Christians, say, you know, oh, we just we got to spread the word, make sure, oh, every, for sure. everybody is. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, there's a whole church growth movement and um, uh, that actually provides strategies for uh, mobilizing congregations to evangelize countries. Um, the, there's inherent problems with those. I mean, uh, first of all, the research shows that wherever churches seek to uh, be popular and to grow, they are less likely to challenge the state around issues of injustice. <laughs> um, even in order to have a, um, a peaceful coexistence in which that they then can train their congregants how to evangelize others. And then uh, in the process of evangelizing others, um, there's a whole theory of called of homogeneous church growth, which means you're more likely to convert other people that are like you, which means if you stay within your own uh, homogeneous group, uh, you're more likely to get other people to join uh, your congregation. So it's going to be more effective for evangelism. So on the one hand, the church is le less likely to challenge issues of uh, justice. And on the other hand, they're more likely to operate in ways that reflect and reinforce homogeneous groups. And that's why you have um, uh, white churches uh, doing evangelism in a way that reflect, uh, uh, you know, white supremacism. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's more effective in terms of recruiting people into that. I mean, I mean, for imagine, imagine for a sake that you did advocate for justice and you did believe that was important. First of all, you'd find yourself in conflict with the existing regime in which you were located. And many Christian groups around the world are uh, advocates of justice and find themselves in conflict with the regimes in which they're located. And imagine that then they, they started to say when the gospel's about inclusivity, it's about, um, it's about solidarity, uh, let's develop um, churches that uh, are really diverse um, and uh, because that, that will model the gospel that we preach. Um, now, all the research shows that that's less likely to attract members of any particular subgroup to your church. But 
I think it's more valuable in developing an alternative society that's much more inclusive and uh, much more diverse. Yeah, that, that makes sense that, okay, you can bring people into your group who already look like you, but you're sort of doing yourself a disservice in the long run because then you're just making, you're just reinforcing this group think. And if everyone's very like you, then there's fewer people who can sort of push back on the worst aspects of, you know, you know, anybody's most negative aspects. Um, well, a, a great example of the worst example of that is in Rwanda, where you had what was many missionaries considered was a uh, great revival uh, where lots of people were converted to Christianity. And so more than 90% would have identified with being Christian. The trouble was they were converted to uh, denominations that were in conflict with each other that happened to align themselves to Hutus and Tutsis. So that when the, when the, uh, when the conflict arose, um, uh, Christians tended to operate according to their ethnic uh, allegiances. And there were very few Christians who could actually bridge the gap between those two communities. In fact, interestingly enough, one of the groups that was most effective in reaching across the chasm between the Hutus and Tutsis were Muslims, uh, which is a great irony for Christians because Christians like to think we've got a, we've got a, 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 a monopoly on a commitment to uh, true compassion. Um, those Muslims, they're just committed to uh, revenge. They're not committed to grace. But it was Muslims who actually were able to build bridges between those two communities. And Christians, because they'd been converted in terms of this homogeneous church growth, were not able to operate beyond their group uh, to reach out to the other, except in small numbers of heroically courageous people whose witness I would not want to discount. Wow. I didn't know the whole religious dimension to what happened in Rwanda and, and that being like what sort of solidified the barrier between these two groups. Interesting. It was, it was a factor. A it fact. wasn't the whole factor, but it's uh, you know, but it was a factor and a significant factor and uh, uh, very serious. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and this sort of relates to this uh, thing that we, we've just been discussing about sort of popularity and evangelizing, uh, this this notion of both having uh, an effect on the larger society where we're, you know, uh, spreading, you know, Christian ideals and, and not even having to call them Christian ideals, but these things of like non-domination of, uh, you know, non-violence, et cetera. There, I'm reminded of the fact that in China before the uh, the communist revolution, there, there was like a large group of uh, explicit anarchists and they had a huge following and maybe uh, by some estimates, as sizable as the communists, but the anarchists did not believe in the use of like violent force compelling people. They didn't raise an army. And so they were politically made irrelevant very quickly. And I'm curious if there's some analogy there to this motto of turning the other cheek. Is it possible that that can just enable the, the worst actors in our society if we don't have a way of 
defending ourselves. It's interesting you use that example in China. I was thinking of Spain, where in the Spanish Civil War, you know, you had the fascists yeah. and the communists, totally. but also the anarchists. But the anarchists got done over by both sides uh, because they weren't prepared to pay the same really cynical, strategic, um, uh, militant uh, uh, approaches as the fascists and uh, communists were. Um, so uh, there's plenty of examples of where people seeking to be true to these values of non-dominance and non-violence, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, uh, find themselves uh, um, really brutally uh, crushed. Um, and I think um, as a follower of Jesus, that's to be expected. <laughs> It's not like Jesus ended up being the king of uh, of yeah. Israel because he, he, you know, he he chose to use a, a a militant strategy that overthrew the Roman Empire. I mean, he he critiqued empire, uh, but he also critiqued not only the Roman dimension of it, the Jewish dimension. So all those in authority on both the Roman side and the and the Jewish side were opposed to him because he actually critiqued their uh, maintaining their position and their power. And so when it came to the crunch, uh, it was a very easy decision to make to eliminate him. And, uh, and for the first few hundred years, the same happened uh, uh, with followers of Jesus who were committed to uh, not retaliate and not react uh, but turned the other cheek, uh, they found themselves in a position where they were slaughtered. However, I mean, the whole irony, of course, is, is that a lot of those people died with great dignity and integrity and grace. And that proved to be a profound influence on other people about putting them in touch with a deeper quality of humanity that they were attracted to. And they, they were enchanted by that. And so you, you, you did get a movement of people um, in spite of the persecution and destruction of those small cadres of uh, messianic followers of Jesus, in, uh, that that uh, that were really attracted to the way of Jesus and uh, became very very significant. The point to to the point where in, in the end Constantine wanted to actually legitimate their place in society because he he felt that they were growing so strong, they had so much influence that he wanted to actually. Um, find a way to co-opt it. Now, a, a point I do want to make um, is your mention of this idea of turning the other cheek. Now, there are some people that interpret that as um, a surrender of agency. So how can you be a good anarchist and advocate turning the cheek? Because at the heart of anarchism is helping people discover their agency. Um, uh, I would actually argue uh, that statement is about helping people develop their agency, that um, it's prefaced by Jesus saying, don't resist or don't react to those who slap you on one cheek, uh, turn the other cheek instead. Now, the reality is most of us are socialized into reacting. Um, so we treat other people the way they treat us. So other people can control us and control our reactions by their actions. They hit us, they can, they know how the the games play, they know we want to hit back. 
Mm -hmm. So I would argue that Jesus was part of this revolutionary movement that taught us not to treat other people the way they treat us, not allow them to determine the agenda for our lives so that if they hit us, we hit them back, that Jesus actually tried to um, break the cycle of violence by encouraging people to have the courage not to do what was expected of them, not to, not to uh, play the same game of, of violence. And, and to be liberated from that so that then you could critically engage in the context in a way where you had total agency. So rather than seeing turning the other cheek as a way of, um, well, in sexist language, emasculating people, uh, I see turning the other cheek as a, a practice uh, whereby you learn not to allow others to determine your reactions by their actions. And that then gives you the creative space to respond differently. Now, this is in fact one thing I practice. I'm committed to nonviolence. And part of nonviolence is that I have to, in the nanosecond second between action and reaction, process my responses so I don't allow other people who treat me violently to just provoke me to violence. Because one of the major issues we've got in our world are cycles of violence that just continue to roll on because uh, people haven't developed the agency to process uh, their reactions in terms of constructive responses. And mm -hmm. so, and Jesus is actually arguing for a, a movement where we develop the agency or the capacity or the power so that uh, regardless of the way people treat us, we treat them the way we would like to be treated. Now, this is truly radical. This is truly revolutionary. And um, uh, so rather than losing agency, this is, uh, this is how we can become agents of change. Yeah, and, and speaking of putting these sort of quotes in context, um, the, the other thing that I heard recently that I really liked is uh, the author Sally Rooney was talking about the whole Christian love your enemies and how that often gets confused for liking your enemies, which <laughs> if, if we liked our enemies, the, you know, they wouldn't be very good enemies, would they? <laughs> uh, so it, it, I, I suppose uh, you, your argument rings true, um, but thinking it through as a practical matter, when we talk about, oh, uh, people like Christ uh, who did not turn to domination um, and, and did inspire others, et cetera, you know, but then again, it's like, okay, you know, maybe if the anarchists in Spain had been a little bit more crafty and just a little pinch of cynicism, maybe they would have defeated, you know, the fascists and Lord knows that that caused a, a huge amount of suffering, um, their rule in the world. Um, and so there could be an argument of like, well, actually, maybe it's not, you know, on what level is it just, you know, you're A, throwing your life away or B, sort of folding your arms and saying, well, you know, I'm staying true to my ideals while allowing far worse actors to sort of rule the day. My view is that our primary call um, is... Uh, a call to practice uh, a radical spirituality of compassion. That being so, uh, 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 we need in every situation to be prepared to 
not only identify those that are marginalised and disadvantaged, but identify with those who are marginalised and disadvantaged, and that we need to um, uh, be willing to have the courage to intervene on their behalf uh, to support them and help them and protect them. Uh, that being so, I cannot ever just close my arms and withdraw and use cowardice as a rationalization for nonviolence. Or, oh, sorry, non I can't use nonviolence as a rationalization for cowardice. Um, in fact, I would argue that intervening to save other people is so important that if you cannot think of a nonviolent way to do it, it's better to use violence to do it than to use nonviolence as an excuse not to do it. Having said that, I do believe that uh, violence always produces further violence and increases the cycle of violence. And ultimately, if we want to end the cycle of violence, we have to move on from violence to nonviolence, which is part of the radical teachings of Jesus. Um, now, for me, practically, you're asking, that means I live in a street where people are beaten up, where people are attacked, where people are knifed. And often I lay in my bed next to my wife and she listens to the fights in the street. And uh, if she thinks they're even and, uh, uh, you know, people are getting as good as they get, she leaves it. But if she feels that somebody is being um, bashed and or, you know, a woman is being raped, then she'll kick me in the ribs and tell me to go out and sort it out. So, so we believe we have a responsibility to our neighbours, specifically to intervene in violent situations where we risk uh, getting um, beaten ourselves. And I mean, I've been beaten so badly at occasions I've been taken to hospital uh, in an ambulance. So I'm not an armchair uh, uh, advocate of these views. I uh, I actually intervene in, in violence my street. Um, uh, when I was in Delhi in 1984 and the, um, the Sikhs uh, assassinated uh, Indira Gandhi, who's the prime minister, and uh, Hindus erupted all over the city and started slaughtering all their Sikh neighbours. And you could see all over the city there were places on fire. And, and I looked out the window and Hindus were the mobs of Hindus were chasing Sikhs down the street. I mean, my temptation as a coward is to say, well, what can I do? I mean, I can't make a difference. You know, I mean, the police have withdrawn uh, and uh, uh, there's, uh, there's people out there in their thousands that are slaughtering people. And within, you know, 24 hours, um, depending how you look at it, two to 4,000 Sikhs were slaughtered. But as a follower of Jesus, um, who um, Gandhi took more seriously than most Christians did, I might add, uh, I thought, I've got to do something. Otherwise, I can't talk about this stuff anymore. So, in fact, I then went out um, and um, it's, it's a long story, but to cut it short, I, in the end, I found myself um, standing in front of a household of Sikhs being surrounded by Hindus who were uh, breaking into their place and smashing glass and setting it on fire. And I stood in their doorway um, facing the mob saying, Shantirehe, Shantirehe, Unko Namarana, just saying, look, please do not hurt these people. Um, and I 
chose that was where to make my stand. Now, the reality is if any of that mob had actually uh, hit me, they would have just uh, cut me to pieces. Uh, there's no Hollywood ending in that kind of situation. Even if you used violence, when there's one or two people against 100 people, uh, even if you choose to use violence rather than nonviolence, if they, uh, if you can't hold their attention, if you can't look in their eyes and can't appeal to their humanity, uh, they're going to kill you, I, whichever method you use. But, you know, I looked into their eyes, I prayed, I appealed to them, and eventually they said, oh, we'll go and get somebody else. Uh, and they left the family and went down the street and the family came from upstairs. And I'm sure you're aware of all the, rules in India about not touching other people. and But the family came down. We all hugged each other, cried together, um, because we knew, you know, this was, uh, we were close to death in that situation. So I believe in the way of Jesus. I believe in Jesus' commitment to a radical spirituality of compassion. I believe that means that we can't sit back and uh, use nonviolence as an excuse for cowardice. I believe that if the only way we think we can intervene Better to use violence than not act at all. But I believe nonviolence in the end is our best hope to break the cycle of violence and to bring peace in the midst of conflict. India is a fascinating place. I, I was there uh, before COVID, right before COVID, actually. And I remember, you know, speaking of sort of these religious conflicts that, that flare up, um, I remember talking one night in a hostel and I mentioned something about the, the, the Modi, but the, the prime minister yeah, yeah, yeah. made some offhand joke and everyone got really quiet. And it was not, I wasn't trying to make like a political statement. It was something about like him and a pop star or something like that. And then afterwards, uh, this guy who I was friends with there, he, um, we went to a cafe and we went out on the balcony and it was kind of cold out. And but we went out there so we get some privacy. And he was like, "Okay, now I can tell you, like, the the hostel owner is uh, he's member of BJP, and oh, he would be really really angry if you heard yeah, anything." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's right. Th this kind of just like simmering conflict is is still palpable yeah, yeah. there. Um, well, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean. The Constitution of India is one of the best in the world. It's a secular con constitution that uh, validates uh, the place for all religions without giving uh, a privilege to any religion. And yet Modi has uh, been a part of the RSS, a member of the BJP. He's a part of that movement that actually assassinated Gandhi <laughs> uh, uh, because he was uh, committed to the welfare, even though he was a Hindu, committed to the welfare of the Muslims. And so they shot him. And uh, and now a lot of uh, these uh, people in India that are part of that movement are uh, saying we should follow uh, Godse, who killed Gandhi rather than follow, follow Gandhi. So that that tradition of Hinduism that Gandhi was involved with uh, uh, is one that's been tragically sidelined by the rise of this ethno-nationalist Hindutva, uh, which wants to privilege Hinduism over all other religions in India um, and is now um, 
rationalizing the persecution of religious minorities, uh, be they Christians, Muslims, or Sikhs. Yeah, it's it, it's a fascinating country, and and you're you're right that the sort of framework of their politics seems really uh, inspiring, and it seems very similar. Uh, I don't know as much about Australia, but it seems very similar in many ways to the United States of having all these, you know, it's this massive country has all these different ethnic groups in it, and uh, just trying to figure it out as like a secular democracy. How, what, what, um, why eventually did you leave? Was it because of all this conflict? Yeah, that we were put out of the country in the end. So we we lived there for twelve years, and um, uh, not. Not long after the the um, slaughter in Delhi and our, our attempt to uh, respond to that, a whole lot of foreigners were asked to leave because they were suspicious of their uh, support for the Sikh separatists. So they asked a lot of people to uh, who lived there, like us, to leave. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. Um, I, I'm. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about that's a separate topic from what we've just been discussing, but it's big in the States and it's one that I think uh, a lot of, um, especially like young people and women in particular have, uh, and people like on the left in general, I guess, um, one of the, sort of the signals when they hear someone's a Christian is they start wondering about their their stance on abortion. And I'm, I'm pro-choice. I think that's... Uh, you know, good for, for a woman to be able to choose. Um, do, do you have strong, but it also seems like Jesus didn't really talk that much about abortion. In fact, I don't even know if he mentioned it at all. In, in He didn't the- mention it at all. And interestingly enough, for uh, Christians who pride themselves on being opposed to LGBTQI people, Jesus never mentioned those issues at all. What he yeah. did mention was greed and, <laughs> and lust and power and, uh, 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 and exploitation they're the issues that he mentioned so the so the things he didn't mention christians are taking to be their badge of honor and the things that he didn't uh that he did mention uh are ones that they don't want to talk about because they fundamentally critique their privilege right yeah do, do you have um what do you think is like the christian response to these issues of like abortion and like lgbt rights so, um, so in terms of LGBTQ rights, I believe it's just a, it's a, it's a justice issue that, uh, uh, whatever your opinion on those, uh, your sexual mores are, it's a simple justice issue that people should have the same rights as everybody else, whether you agree with them or not. So, for me, uh, and I personally believe that all religious groups uh, should not have the right to marry people. I believe that that should be a state issue. Then religious people can't actually <laughs> have any power to determine yeah. people, whether people get married or not. Uh, so my view is that people, it should be a state um, recognized social uh, right, R-I-T-E. And um, everybody has the same rights, R-I-G-T-R-I-G-H-T-S uh, to that right. Um, and if, people belong to a particular faith tradition they can have an, a celebration of that uh apart from that but those religious groups should not 
be in a position to determine whether people get married or not. Okay, but that's that's yeah. my view on that. Um, around abortion, uh, I would say I'm pro-life, uh, uh, but I believe that um, abortion should be uh, legal, safe, and rare uh, for where there's the necessity for it. So it's not a it, it's not an ideological position that's uh, categorical. And I would say to f Christian friends in America who vote Republican because they're pro-life, you know, they're only, only pre-birth pro-life. <laughs> they're not, they're not actually pro-life. Uh, um, and I would say to them um, that they should remember that under the Democrats, the pro-women pro policies of the Democrats uh, mean that there's less pressure on uh, women to have abortions and there's actually less abortions under Democrats than there are under the Republicans. I mean, because their pol policies are supportive of women who find themselves in distress. So um, even if you're pro-life, I would say to those people, yeah, you should vote Democrat rather than Republican because in, on balance, their policies are, are more pro-life and therefore less threatening for people and less uh, less stressful for people. And so people who feel they have a choice as whether to have an abortion or not don't feel pushed into having an abortion if they don't want to. Having said that, I believe where people find themselves in a situation of desperation for a whole range of reasons, I believe abortion should be, as I said, uh, uh, safe, legal, but rare. That That is an interesting position. Um, and I think that that is one that is not commonly heard of like, but it, it, it feels like maybe, uh, I mean, one of it feels like a fair position of like, listen, I don't like this, but uh, in terms of the law, it should be legal. Um, and there are all kinds of policies of like, um, you know, like one of the things that uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, yep. uh, I'm sure if you're, he, he is obviously very anti, uh, you know, religion in any sense, but yep. one of the things he talked about when he was talking about Mother Teresa, like people praise her for her efforts to relieve poverty. But one of like the main things that that does eliminate poverty is like empowering women in society and letting them have control over things like, you know, family planning, not contraception, yeah, contraception, yeah. all these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I and that kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier of like the uh, sometimes there's a tension between one's like ideals and like how one actually accomplishes those ideals. And I think yeah, yeah. there's always tensions. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting. Do, do you kind of despair at the state of, of public Christianity sometimes to see like the way it's discussed and also like how it's most like fervent adherence uh, apparently Um oftentimes like frame these issues and like choose to concentrate on abortion as opposed to like helping the poor, et cetera. Oh, I despair deeply. Yeah. I mean, in my country here at the moment, Christians, uh, particularly evangelical Christians, and I come from an evangelical tradition myself, 
making it an identity marker to be um, heterosexual, cis-heterosexual. I mean, and the only reason they can do that is because it costs them nothing. They're yeah. born like that. And so rather than, um, and, and so they're claiming this is a virtue that requires no effort. I mean, but if you look at any other issue, honesty, transparency, uh, authenticity, empathy, um, uh, solidarity, um, a, a willingness to risk, to struggle for justice for other people that you don't necessarily agree with, I mean, all of which are gospel values, they're not taking those as identity markers at all. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I feel that they're completely misrepresenting. Uh, who Christ was and what Christ was on about. And so I despair greatly. Yeah. We've been talking, I just noticed, we've been talking a lot about these like ideals. Um, and among the, the beliefs of Christians that we've not been discussing are things like the resurrection, life after death, heaven and hell, these kinds of things. D do you... Um, like uh, someone who called themselves not a, a Christianarchist, but a Christian anarchist like Tolstoy, he was a guy who arrived at a position where he called himself a Christian, but did not technically believe in the resurrection, did not believe in heaven and hell. And, you know, one thing that we would say in Catholic school was like, well, if you're looking at resurrection, it's just like a metaphorical thing. You're really just taking the easy way out, you know, <laughs> asking us to believe in his resurrection is much more difficult. So how dare you? Um, what about you? What's your sort of take on these things? Let me uh, frame it carefully. Um, going back to Jesus, that's my big thing, as, as you've guessed. Um, yes. Jesus, one of the most famous stories um, that Jesus told was the story of the Good Samaritan. And the context of that question, uh, story was where somebody asked Jesus, what do I do to have eternal life? Or you know, in religious terms these days, what do I do to be saved? And um, and Jesus says, well, what do you see the scripture saying? And he says to, you know, love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, do that. And then the guy comes back and said, oh, what about the Samaritans? Anyway, um, or, or, or who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about Samaritans that most Jews despised. Um, particularly, uh, because of the, what the Jews considered were their heretical ideas. And there was a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well where they discussed the difference between Jewish theology and Samaritan theology. So Jesus was, yeah, like most Jews of the day, very aware of those uh, issues. Um, but like most, unlike most Jews, Jesus didn't see those theological issues as the primary issue. Um, in fact, uh, he, in the telling of the story, he denounces uh, the priest and the Levite, who are the carriers of orthodoxy within the Jewish religion. He denounces them for not showing compassion, uh, whereas the Samaritan, who was anything but orthodox, showed compassion. Uh, for this a man beaten by the side of the road. And Jesus turns around and says to his disciples, go and do likewise. That's, that's what's really important. So um, 
it seems to me that if we take Jesus seriously, uh, orthodoxy is not so important as orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though I would say to you, in answer to your question, I have a set of uh, beliefs, many of them would be quite orthodox uh, beliefs that many Christians would uh, uh, likewise uh, affirm. That to me is not so important. Uh, I, I think it's uh, uh, what's really important is orthopraxis. So orthodoxy is not unimportant, but it's not primary important. It's of secondary importance. And so those discussions and those debates, I think are important conversations, but they're not to me of primary importance. I don't think they were for Jesus. Um, he, he actually said, you know, uh, what's more important is that he said, so the, the, the good news is that God is love. The, the really important thing is that you reflect the love of God in practice that's the crucial issue everything else is secondary now interestingly enough where we started this conversation you asked me what how, what went wrong with christianity what went wrong with christianity is the nicene creed which was one of the foundation documents that was used in that uh, compromise with constantine um defines christianity and religion in terms of a whole set of orthodox beliefs uh but doesn't mention the love of god at all there's not a word about love in it. It's all about beliefs, not about behaviors that reflect a commitment to a God of love or loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When Jesus said that was what was most essential. So is it important to have those conversations about uh, those issues? Yes, it is. I've come to my own views on those things, which I'm happy to tell you about, but they're secondary. They're not primary. The primary issue, I believe, is as a follower of Jesus is that he embodied the love of God in a way that was tangible and enchanting. And he encouraged us to be caught up in this movement of radical compassion for others that reflected the love of God uh, in practice uh, in our daily life. And along the way, we can have all our conversations about, so what does that mean about what we believe? Yeah. Right. Um, but Jesus didn't make beliefs a prerequisite for any of his disciples. I mean, actually, if you read the Gospels, uh, uh, half the time they're having a discussion about who the hell he was. It's not like believing Jesus was the Messiah was a prerequisite for following Jesus. It wasn't. Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, totally. Yeah, no. You call exactly. them to follow him and then have the conversations as they go along. And uh, uh, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct their beliefs in the in the context of a safe environment where they felt loved enough to be able to critically engage those issues. Right. Well, that's that's the point where you realize that, you know, to the extent that the gospels are like an accurate depiction of of what happened then, which certainly they were written and certain like stylized, you know, to a degree. But yeah, that that part just clearly demonstrates that like whatever you think this was not a cult of like personality if people are standing around going like who who is this guy <laughs> like yeah that's right you know what's going on with this dude um, yeah exactly that's yeah that's an interesting point i had talked yeah, so, so anarchist as an anarchist i find that very endearing uh that jesus uh uh started out in a in a teacher-student relationship with his disciples, which is a classic hierarchy. But after three years, he says, 
um, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because I've shared everything that was shared with me. So you have the same and you'll be able to do greater works than me. So he's actually saying over this process, over this time, uh, we've deconstructed hierarchy, reconstructed in terms of mutuality. I would no longer use hierarchical language in uh, talking about our relationships. I'll use the language of friend friendship, which is essentially uh, egalitarian. And in the, the, the space, in that space of friendship, he created uh, a safety to have multiple conversations and discussions and debates about these issues. Actually, to a point where he got to sometimes going, oh, my God, how can I put up with all this, this, all this, this chaos and mess? But he seemed to think that that was a better alternative than indoctrinating people. Right, and certainly so. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, and we're almost at an hour here, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to go in five minutes. Yeah, um, this is something I had uh, a guy on my podcast uh, before, Bart Campolo. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a, a former. Yeah, yeah. Y- y- okay, you have. He's a Tony former Campolo's son. Yes, um, former evangelical preacher who is yep. now a, a secular humanist, and yep. he's sort of. Uh, came to the conclusion that what he was doing and he believes again I don't know if this is true but he believes this of all sort of progressive lefty Christians that really what they're doing is um, just having in their heads like a vision of like what goodness is and then saying okay my vision of goodness that is what God and Jesus embodied and then you know, his next step in the argument is, like, well, so all progressive Christians eventually just become atheists. Uh, do you, how, how do you feel about that? Um, it's exactly the opposite for me. Uh, for me, my my mother and father were very doubt, devout religious people. Uh, they introduced me to a faith in God. They represented that in a way that endeared me to the God uh, to whom I was introduced. They introduced me to a God who was a God of love that uh, was embodied in, in, uh, in Jesus. And, and so that has been an experience of kind of imminent and transcendent goodness that's nurtured me all the way through my life. Um, and so I my critique of religion doesn't lead me to atheism in fact it's my belief in god that leads me to my critique of religion uh, uh, so it's because i believe in jesus and the way of jesus um as being so significant that i critically engage the religion around me so it's uh, a lot of people believe you know a lot of people think it's because i don't believe that i critique those things it's but because i do believe i critique those things uh, and at the heart of that is the kind of yeah enchanting example of the love of god embodied in jesus for me which is at the heart of my um my spirituality mm. well excellent uh i think it's a, a lovely fair response and dave it was a, a very like it, it was nice talking to you. I, I think this nice is talking to you too. Um, before we go, is there a website, uh, any books you want uh, people to check out? If well, someone wants to hear more about Dave Andrews, so you can go to daveandrews.com.au to see 
uh, a whole lot of articles that you can download for free. Um, there's also a list of all my books that are published and uh, all the songs that I've uh, recorded. Um, you can download all the songs for free. Um, uh, the books you can access from all book um, booksellers uh, in bricks and mortar or online. Um, so I've written over 20 books. And um, yeah, that's it for people to access it. Dave, thanks so much again and take care. See ya, bye. Thank you to Dave Andrews and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gaming. See you next time.